All right, we're, we're, we're recording right now. Here we go. I don't know what episode we're on right now. Um, start of the new year. We, we just started, started the spring semester up. We're excited to be back. We're, we're back into the swing of things. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Thompson, who is an English professor here at Widener University. Um, she also spends a lot of her time at the SCI uh, Greaterford and Chester, which we'll get to in a little bit. How are you doing, Dr. Thompson? I am fine, thank you. <laughs> yeah, how was your holidays? Good? Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, as good as could be expected. You know, it's a little not as exciting as usual, but it was it was still good. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's good to hear. All right. So, Dr. Thompson, I kind of want to hop right into this because, I mean, you can call me Jane. Yeah. Sure? <laughs> yeah. OK. OK, Jane. Because <laughs> um, I definitely want to spend a lot of time at the SCI Chester and Greater stuff. But I think it's probably important to start with a little bit of like background. So for people that don't know you. Um, so, you know, where did you like grow up and like um like where'd you grow up and like what's your background yeah so I grew up in Greensboro North Carolina Ooh. and yeah yeah fa is famous for a couple things like the sit-ins and um famous also unfortunately or infamous for the um when the Klan opened fire on the Communist Workers Party wow but it's it's a kind of all tied into what I do I was let's see what was I then I was um I guess I was 13 mm. when that happened. And of course I didn't really understand what was going on then, but since then I've done a lot of research on it and a lot of thinking about it. And the, um, the interesting, very interesting thing about it is that it's the first time that someone has done a truth and reconciliation commission in the United States mm. was in Greensboro. Now, what does that mean, truth and reconciliation? Like, what does that mean? Do you, I don't know if you remember, um, but well, yeah, you know, you wouldn't have been alive, but maybe you learned about um, South Africa, it's Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the end of apartheid. Oh, I'm, uh, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't, I, maybe I have been, maybe I have learned it. Yeah. yeah, but that's okay. It's, I don't, let me tell you, you already had me for class, so I'm not going to treat you like it's a class. So <laughs> that's all I need is to, and please take out a pencil. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, it's, a, it's a way of bringing the parties together when such um, heinous things have happened um, and a way of getting people to talk without fear of prosecution. And it happened in South Africa and then in the United States with the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened in Greensboro because the Klan came to my hometown and opened fire on people who were protesting. And there were children there, they, you know, they, they were unarmed except for one man um, who happened to have a pistol on him. And it was just absolutely horrible. And afterwards, no one, um, no one went to prison for it. And people felt like, oh my gosh, so you can just kind of come in and, and the, the Klan can kind of do whatever they want and nothing has changed over time. And there was a lot of pain because five people died and a lot of people were very, very injured. Um, psychologically, physically, you know, you name it. And just trust was destroyed in the city. Mm. And, um, and the police didn't show up when, when people expected them to. So there was a lot of talk about whether or not, um, you know, the police were in on this or were told not to come. And so they brought everybody into, um, into the same space and 
people were encouraged to just simply tell the truth and to give people answers. Because as you know, after taking restorative justice with me, that's one of the biggest things that needs to happen is people need answers. So long story short, yeah, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, but it's funny that, not funny, but it's interesting that now I am such a proponent of restorative justice and it's maybe always been because of what I witnessed as a child. So it's just, interesting yeah i i think i I think those are really good points because i was going to ask you if you always felt like you were for restorative justice but i mean obviously but just like you said even at a young age like you've seen it firsthand and even though you didn't know what's going on there's so much psychology now about Mm -hmm. you know children what they see how they act when they're um, adults and sigmund freud does so much psychology on this um which is really interesting so uh, that is interesting. We'll definitely return to that in a little bit, I think. Okay. Um, so then, so you're from North Carolina and then, then you got your undergrad at Westchester um, in English or literature? Yeah. Um, yeah. Literature. Yeah. And then, yeah. so, how, so how did you end up at Westchester? Like, did you move like? Yeah, it's kind of funny, but I had started school at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And then I guess I'm a mommy's girl. My mom moved away. And I just missed her so much. I thought, I think I'm going to go to school where she is. And she had moved back. She was from West Philadelphia originally. And she moved back up into like the Delaware County area. And I've been here, you know, well, I'm in Delaware now, but I've been, you know, kind of ever since I've been in the area. And, um, but I liked Westchester a lot. And I certainly learned an awful lot there and, and started to, to just love the area and went back there for my first master's. Yeah. What was it about literature that you like so much? Like why, why pursue that as a career? You know, that's a really good question because for two and a half years, I was a bio major. Oh, I never knew about this. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine now that you've known me all this time, can you imagine me in a lab? Be a disaster. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Be like, I'm not sure where I put that. Oh, hold on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm I'm much more interested in what people, how people feel and what they're thinking and what they believe. And yeah, I hated the lab. And finally, um, an assistant to one of my professors came up and said, okay, you do great on the book stuff. You can spout that off like crazy, but you know, you look so uncomfortable in the lab. And I'm wondering if you have any idea where you'll work for the rest of your life. As a bio major, it might be in a lab. And I went, oh, God, do you think so? And so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I loved biology, but I had to, I had to go. And, um, and so he, he did me a great favor, though, because I realized I was constantly trying to avoid all my science homework. Oh, which, yeah, which everybody probably, you know, yeah. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> understands that. It's hard, you know? Yeah. I'm like, oh God, physics and you, you name it. Man, and constantly wanting to read a novel. Mm. And I really loved all those classes. And I would take uh, classes in literature that were not going anywhere toward my major. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, tons of extra lit classes. And so the handwriting was on the wall. I just wouldn't read it. What are some of like your favorite books? Um, I, I mean, I'm be honest. The only, the only book I've read in high school was The Great Gatsby. That's the only one I've read, um, which is unfortunate. But I guess it's you know, 
Uh, maybe I'll read some more in the future, but what are some of like, your favorites? Yeah, maybe when you get out of school, you'll actually have some time, which would be really nice. But um, I, I love the nonfiction stuff, though. I read like a lot of nonfiction stuff, more like self-help books, you know, but not really into the, not that I'm not into fiction, but I don't know. We'll see. But anyway. You don't have to be into fiction. You know, it, there's tons of nonfiction out there that's just absolutely fabulous. I love nonfiction, too. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. Uh, John Krakauer's work is incredible. I think you probably really love him. Mm. I, re I read um, Into Thin Air, okay. um, which is about um, a climb to Everest and a disaster there. I nope. finished the book, loved it so much that I turned to the last page and went, oh, that just can't be over. And I started it again. Like mm. that's, how, <laughs> that's how much sometimes I can love nonfiction too. Mm. But, um, but I love the Brontes. Yeah. And Jane Eyre. What's that? What is the Brontes? What is that? Oh, the Brontes, the Bronte sisters, um, Emily, Charlotte, and Anne. Okay. And I read so much of that when I was younger. And, and just again and again, mm. you know, I read those, but especially Jane Eyre. I think mm. I just really, really love that novel. Yeah. I, I think one of, one of my favorite things about you is that like, I mean, like any other English teacher, but I think more so, especially with you, is that you really see the deeper meaning within it all. And you really encourage your students to really see that, I think. And, but it's not like you push your ideas on anyone. It's like, you read it this way, but you really encourage your students to kind of, when they read it, you kind of have them explain it or then like in their own terms, you know, which I think is really cool. Well, that's a nice thing to say. Thank you so much. I'm glad it. <laughs> I'm glad it seems that way. That's what I want, you know. Because there's not. Oh, go ahead. That's one of the. I mean, I would just say in in literature in general, it's hard for like science majors to kind of think that way. Um, you know, I, I would just say that like, I try to, but, you know, many times we're we're binary thinkers, and at least when it comes to abstract ideas. I mean, you know, we're in the lab and learning science. We think outside the box in terms of science. But, you know, when I read a fiction book, I'm going to try and get to the, the what's the point of this and then what what's sometimes I don't have as much interest in finding that deeper meaning, um, which is, you know, which is why I admire like people who are in literature, because these things can transcend time like many, many books can transcend the ideas and morals can transcend time, you know, so. Yeah. But anyway. So you're at your Westchester and then you pursued um, an MFA at Fairleigh Dickerson. So, you know, how was that experience? And like, what led you to make that decision? Yeah, well, it's funny. First, I went for um, an MA at Westchester. I just couldn't get enough of books. And so I, as soon as I finished my bachelor's, I went for a master's and, um, and got a, ma a master's there. And then I started teaching. And so um, once I started teaching, I realized I have really found what I want to do. Like, it just felt amazing. And I loved it. And I finally felt like, okay, yeah, this is, this is me. And then, um, but I also had been writing creatively for years. And so I thought I really wanted to go back to school and I couldn't decide. And finally, I decided to go for an MFA at Fairleigh Dickinson and, um, and one, one of the big draws, they would love me saying this, God, but they, I got to go to school in England to wow. do it. Yeah. And, and I went, okay, well, that's the, yeah, I'll do that one. Yeah. 
I just fell yeah. in love they, uh, with Roxton Abbey, and it, it was absolutely an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. How was, yeah, how was England? Like, where did you go? Were you in London? Um, we were in, outside of Oxford, near okay. Banbury, mm-hmm. in a place called Roxton. And okay. it, yeah, like a tiny little place with a little pub in the neighborhood. And we were in a really old um, abbey and just, yeah, it was amazing. And mm-hmm. I had amazing teachers. I had this one teacher who I still just adore and, ha- and actually wound up staying in my life all these years, um, mm-hmm. Thomas E. Kennedy, mm-hmm. a fabulous novelist and um, creative nonfiction teacher. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was really great. That's awesome. Yeah. So then how, so how did your decision at why, how did you land the job at why did you have previous experiences or did you just kind of roll right in? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had, I, as a grad student at Westchester, I had started the writing center there. Writing centers were kind of new, you know, the place where students go to get help on their work. And I started it with my friend, Tina George. And, um, and so when I heard that there was a job open at Widener, um, and I heard just through a friend, I, I, I had the shortest interview, I think, in, in recorded history. I walked in, I was, you know, all dressed up in my suit and so nervous. And I sat down with the loveliest person, um, Pat Dyer, who runs our writing center at Widener. And she asked me a couple of questions and she said, well, can you start now, like right now? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I can. And she said, yeah, there's a student there sitting. Go ahead. You've got the job. And I thought, okay, that was about five minutes, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I know it was, it was wonderful. I wish you could always work like that for everyone. And, um, and I wound up working there for a long time. And then I met um, Dr. Alonzo Cabin, who ran um, something called Project Prepare. And it was a summer program that for students who, um, were economically, that college was going to be really challenging for them, economically speaking, which who isn't it for, but, but extra challenging. And, um, and also um, maybe needed a little bit of assistance to sure. kind of get their skills up. And I started teaching reading and then multiculturalism for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I was, by then I was so deep into Widener and Widener's mission and I was already back, this is back in the 90s, and I was already starting to do community work and book clubs for kids and yeah, just all kinds of all kinds of things. So I was really deeply in Chester mm-hmm. and deeply in Widener by then. Yeah, that's that's yeah, you I know you you're always deeply in, in the community. Um I, real quick, I, I, I can't get my mind off this. How do you teach reading? Like what do you like how do you even begin to teach reading? Yeah, I know, you know, know, that it's, it's, it's difficult because when you get into a room with maybe, you know, 20 different people who are, who have difficulties in many different areas in reading and you think, okay, how am I going to hit them all? But basically we can, there's lots of ways of scaffolding and helping students to become better readers. But one, I, I just had a discussion with a guy at the prison actually yesterday about this. And he was saying, he's, I'm such a slow reader. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe that doesn't matter that much. It's being a careful reader. And that's what we can kind of teach people. We can teach Mm -hmm. people to 
to, I'm not so worried about speed. I'm more worried about comprehension. And we can teach people all kinds of ways of, of improving their comprehension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I think, yeah, I, I agree. Because I think that that kind of gets blended. Well, the comprehension versus speed thing gets blended when in standardized testing, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is the huge downfall here. Because, you know, in, in high school, even like middle school, you know, you, you, you train your kids to read quickly so that they can move through these, these problems, I guess, these question answers. And they're not really comprehending it. I mean, at least I would say at least a large, I mean, I shouldn't say large majority. I don't know statistics on this, but it seems like many students would prioritize the speed and getting through it over Mm -hmm. the comprehension. And I think that's filtered through, that's funneled through this idea of standardized testing. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how you feel about that, um, but I would, that's my, that's my guess though. Yeah, it, anytime I think about the, the types of tests that people have to take, they're definitely set up for a certain type of learner. And, and that's such a shame because we do, we prioritize and we reward moving quickly through something. And I wonder how much of that really matters. If people are willing to put in the time why does everything have to be, you have 15 minutes for this section mm-hmm. and it's these comprehension questions. And so it rewards the people who've learned the tricks mm-hmm. and certainly doesn't reward the, reward the people who haven't learned those tricks and it's who so, haven't gone to the special classes for so SAT prep. And, yeah. yeah, it's so discouraging too. It's like, are you, what are we, it's like, what are you really promoting here? Like you want kids to read or you want them to feel crappy about their not being able to read as quickly? Um, I know I, that to me is so sad. I actually, one time I had a man literally jump back from me in an elevator. He was like, Oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm an English teacher. And he jumped away from me. Like I was, (laughs) I don't know, like some kind of Stephen King creature. And I just thought, what was that? And he was like, English teachers, the scariest people. And I thought, okay, that should, that should not be because actually, ah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know who you have to go and talk to about this Department of Education. Like, hey, like, well, I think, you know, honestly, though, listen, this, even with COVID, like, they removed, a lot of schools are removing the SAT, ACT. Mm-hmm. So maybe we're moving in the right direction. Maybe that's one of the silver linings of this pandemic, honestly. It's, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a very good point. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, but um, so, okay, so you're at Widener, you're really invested in the community, I think, and this is what I really wanted to talk to you about, and okay. this, you know, um, I think a lot of viewers uh, should start knowing about, because um, I certainly didn't know about it um, until I took your course in restorative justice. Um, so you, do you volunteer, you, or no, you work, you, you teach, you work at SCI Greater Ferdinchester? Well, you know, it's, I'm very lucky that a few years ago, um, oh God, actually more than a few, maybe more like five or six, mm-hmm. um, I approached my head of English, uh, Dr. Janine Utel, mm-hmm. and said, I'd really like to run a community writing center. And there are some all over the country, not, not enough in my mind, but there are some where universities are going out in the community. And also um, independent people are running community writing centers where anybody can go and um, talk about writing, talk about reading, you know, and get some help on projects and things like that. 
And she made it so that I would get a course release. So instead of teaching four, I would teach three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could run this community writing center. And so in a way, it is part of my course load um, go, going out in the community and doing all of this. And I am incredibly lucky for that. Although I would have, before that, I had been just doing it. And it was all volunteer, yeah. but, um, but now, um, especially during the pandemic, I'm, I don't have my space. I used to have a space at city hall that all got closed down, you know, but, but, it, but again, silver lining, my relationship with the prison has really blossomed mm-hmm. in beautiful ways in that now um, the principal at SCI Chester is amazing. Just yeah. an amazing person. And she's allowing us to continue the classes that I had been teaching in person. We're doing it all via email. We email everything to her. She emails it back to us. And it's been really going very nicely. Yeah, that's awesome. So for those who don't know, so SEI Greaterford is, well, SEI stands for, I'm sorry? Sorry, I'm at Chester right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I know, but you have, you have Greaterford before, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been in Greater. That was all volunteer. Okay. Yes. That was, yeah. Yeah, so SEI stands for a state correctional institution. Um, Greaterford was a juvenile, basically, I mean, it's basically a prison, I guess. Is that correct or am I, am I overstepping? Greaterford is actually, yeah, it is a prison. It's a maximum security for adults. Wow, okay. And it, yeah, it houses, uh, unfortunately, our death row. But mm. it's now called Phoenix. They, well, Greaterford, the building is still there. It's interesting, it was built I think in 1929, um, uh, with a lot of the work being done by incarcerated people at Eastern State Penitentiary, which mm-hmm. is in Philadelphia. Yeah, well, and um, well, now Greaterford, what's that? So we all know how that one went. Yeah. Okay. State. And now um, it's moved down the hill and it's called Phoenix. But I was at Greaterford when I was, when I was teaching there. And then you're currently at Chester, which is a medium security, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we should begin with this, you know, for people that don't know, what is like restorative justice? Um, Because I guess I don't, you do do restorative justice, but you also teach English. So they kind of go, they're not really hand in hand, but they're kind of in the same like realm of like Mm -hmm. restorative, I guess, I guess you could say English is underneath that restorative justice umbrella, I guess. But I don't know if you want to go ahead and kind of explain that. That's such an interesting way of looking at it, that that it's kind of, that they are related. I, I always say that so much of my life, what, what I love about it is that there's so many intersections. Mm-hmm. And I think that restorative justice and English are, that there is some kind of lovely intersection where I've kind of found what I want to do because restorative justice is about listening. And it's about people telling their story, people t- opening up and speaking to one another um, and so in that way, yeah, it, pr- it probably does kind of intersect really beautifully because it is about narrative. It's about story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a different way of looking at the justice system. You know, we tend to look at the justice system as, uh, okay, this person has done this. What does he or she deserve? You know, what kind of punishment does this person deserve? Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at other questions like, because where did you hear me talk about the victim in that? You probably didn't, because I didn't. Um, Restorative justice instead says, okay, harm has been done. What is the harm? Who caused the harm? Who was harmed? And really places 
an emphasis on the, um, the victim and co-victims because so many people are hurt whenever there's, you know, a crime has been done. Often there's these ripple effects, you know, and, and restorative justice really looks at that and listens to that and pays attention to that. And that's what I think I really like about it. But it also doesn't just throw, throw the, the offender, which I still hate that word, but the offender away and says, okay, just lock the door, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know. Instead it says, no, this person has value. And there's, there's maybe something that this person can still, um, there's a way that this person can still belong to the community. Right. And so instead of kind of pushing people out, it allows for people to, to, to stay as part of the community. And I think your thought process for that, I mean, that had to have, must have start when you were younger back in, you know, Greenberg, right? I mean, that's kind of like where these ideas probably transpired, right? Um, that reconciliation stuff. I'm going to be honest. I mean, I, I, and I've told you this before, like I was one of the people that was kind of, I shouldn't say against, but I was very skeptical of how this was going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to believe, you know, people, people like, you know, that do really tough crimes. Like we're talking like sexual assault and like that kind of stuff. Mm. I used to believe that, you know, listen, throw them in a hole and just, you know, and, uh, you know, lock the door and throw away the key or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you and Don really changed my perspective on it. Um, because you're right. Um, I think, and many times you're right anyways. Um, <laughs> many times you're right. I'm sure there are some failures, but there's a lot of success stories because we do forget about the victims. And I think you put it perfectly. Like there's a ripple effect, like, especially with sexual, sexual assault, like there's, you know, it starts with one, but it ripples into the family and close friends. And then it just, it can go downhill. Um, so that's, that's really eye opening. And then instead of, and then the biggest thing I, I would say is, you know, it's a moral question. Does everyone deserve second chances? And, um, I, I believe that. Um, and if you're just going to throw your prisoners in a, in a, in a cell and just, they're just going to sit there, how does that make them better for when they return to society? Um, and I don't know if you want to just like comment on that or anything like that, but that's, that's just how I feel. Yeah. It doesn't make them better for when they return at all. You're so right. I, in fact, there are, I not believe me, I stopped doing the sciencey stuff a while ago, but there have been studies and brain studies of what um, being in solitary confinement does to a human being. Yeah, the psyche. Yeah. And, you know, the amygdala can actually grow in age as, as we age instead of, you know, you think of, which is responsible for empathy mm. um, and that we can grow our ability to empathize most of us not everyone but most of us can grow in that ability but the way to make sure that we don't grow in that is to lock people away alone Mm -hmm. and i i'm so against solitary confinement Mm -hmm. i don't know how people can survive Mm -hmm. in that kind of situation i know a lot of people who have been in it Mm -hmm. and have talked about that it's a full-on process coming out of solitary and even just being able to live inside the prison again, mm-hmm. but, but also outside in, in the public. Mm-hmm. 
So let me ask you this. You're not, you're not the type of person to be, you know, going down the street yelling, you know, restorative justice and like that kind of stuff. But you, you do, you do have an impact on people that don't know anything about it. Um, and I think that's seen, that's seen in literally all of your classes. Why you, th- why should people like care um, about restorative justice? You know, people like that don't know anything about it. You know, why, why should we like care? Yeah. You know, it affects us all. You know, crime and and the the hurt we put on, not just crime, I shouldn't even say that, the hurt we put on one another, mm-hmm. it affects everybody. As we just talked about, there's, you know, one, one person in your family or a friend is hurt, you are therefore hurt, you know, and there's, there's this, you know, just this constant rippling that happens. Um, so we should care for that reason. And the fact that it can provide healing for those who want to go down that road. Right. You don't have to go down that road. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an important distinction too, like restorative justice is not forced. No. Well, you can get in, you can come in and leave whenever you want. Yeah, absolutely. You know, say, for instance, think of that one, um, the one video we watched that, um, that it was, well, maybe I better not do that one, but. Um, <laughs> this is, you can think about whatever you'd like on here, so. But, um well, anyway, but it's, it's just when, and people have questions, they want to know why some things happen. Think about the Donovans for a moment, Ray and by Donovan. And um, I'm asking you to go back through the summer and think about, no, actually, you just had it. You just had it. Um, but Ray and by Donovan, their son had been murdered. And one of the big things they wanted to know was why? Why did this happen? Why did they leave the why did people first of all attack their son beat him up and then leave him in the middle of the road for a car to run over him and most people might say oh those people are the people who did that were monsters and they should be locked away and we should just not care about them or you know forgive them in in any way and restorative justice isn't about forgiveness but it is about getting answers and ray and vi now go around the donovans go all over the world talking about the fact that once they met with these men, they became not these monsters that everybody had said, but they were boys. They were young men who had done something cruel and inexcusable, but, there's, but they were human beings. And they were, they were so remorseful that they had changed their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, Ray and Vi, I think, needed to hear that because that's where a lot of their healing came from. They heard that they were just so high on drugs, they hardly knew what they were doing. Right. And that's, yeah. The actions, the actions of almost spontaneous actions can just, I I mean, transcend lives. Like literally like we're talking like night and day, um, moments, instance, changing lives forever. Um, And, you know, like we said, like, many people aren't willing, don't have, don't, aren't ready for that, you know, that face yet, but when they are, they get their answers and, and it truly helps them. Um, but so, I mean, it's really powerful stuff. I mean, honestly, like if you, uh, people should just look this up. I mean, honestly, like it's really powerful. Um, let me ask you this. So are you, if you're okay um, with this, oh, yeah. I want to ask you like your, your, your personal success stories, like who, who, 
because people are going to ask, well, you know, we need some, we need some data on this. We need, we need to see it like, mm. work. You know, what's a story that like sticks to you that you've personally helped someone? Maybe they're in a really dark place. Um, the vic- mm-hmm. whether it was the victim or the the offender. I know you really like these words, but um, what's something that like sticks to you that you've seen personally firsthand that this works? Yeah, you know, the first story that just popped in my head because I was just talking about my teacher Tom Kennedy, and it's just reminded me of this. Um, when I was teaching at Greaterford and I had, um, you know, maybe, maybe like 18 men or something sitting around every week and writing their work, we, the class lasted for three years. And sometimes I wondered, gosh, am I, am I doing anything? Is anything changing? Is, you know, anything happening? And um, we wound up, I, I wound up talking to my, te- my former teacher, Tom Kennedy, about it. And I told him, I said, what is so amazing is they have all these wonderful pieces that they've written and they want to put together a book for young people to try to get um, kids to consider their choices. Because, you know, a lot of people are in prison for going along on the ride when something bad happened. Right. You know, they never actually pulled a trigger on anyone, but somebody they were with did. And there, I knew I had started to, you know, know all these people who had these, you know, interesting stories, which by the way, I never look up anybody. Like I'm not going to Google you. I don't Google any of my students, including the incarcerated ones. It's only if they decide to share things with me that Mm -hmm. I actually know. So for most of them, I actually have no idea what they're in for, but um, a number of them, you know, some of them do wind up telling me and I think, oh my gosh. This is so hard, but I had this one man, James, and he's an older man, absolutely um, incredibly intelligent, but he wrote a piece about feeling stupid his whole life and, and, and being told as a child that, you know, he was never going to amount to anything and, you know, all these really sad things. And, um, and then I, after the, we came out with a book, the guys and I did wind up coming out with a book. It's called Letters to My Younger Self, and it's an anthology and workbook. Um, Real and, quick, can I can I get oh, yeah. that? Can I like can I include that? Is that get to? Like, oh yeah, sure. Okay, I'll, I can include that in um, like the the link to the YouTube channel. People can go ahead and read it. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Because for every book that is purchased, the money goes to the publisher, who then sends me copies for free, and I go with it to juvenile detention centers. Wow. share it with kids so yeah so it's yeah. like nobody makes any profit off that book it would be wrong it would be incredibly wrong for anybody to make profit off of it so um but anyway okay good okay. when the book came out um i i wound up going on the radio and i was talking to um i was on npr with marty muscawain who is amazing on radio times oh my god <laughs> oh my god i was so starstruck it's like, I was like oh like Elvis or something. I was like, this is why you <laughs> She kept looking at me like, are you going to be a really bad interview? Because you can't actually speak. And I thought, no, I'll get over it in a minute. I'll have to pretend you're somebody else. But anyway, um, but after that, I was invited to a, um, a lifer's banquet mm. at the prison. And James was there. And he said to me, he said, I have to tell you something. I felt something shift inside me 
when I heard my own voice on the radio, because I played some of their, um, played them reading their own work so that I wouldn't be reading it. I wanted their own voices to do it. And the prison was really nice in allowing me to make those recordings. And he said, I heard myself and now I know who I am. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, my life is complete. Like, isn't that what we want? Isn't that, isn't that why we're in this thing called life anyway, is to, is to figure out who we are, but to also help others right. along the way. If there's some way we can share something with them, we, we owe them that as a fellow human being, I believe. Yeah, one of my rules is, um, you know, build the foundation for yourself. Once you can take on the responsibility of yourself, then you have a, a civil, you know, a civic engagement to take on the responsibility of your neighbors and your, your, your friends, you know, yeah. take care of yourself, take care of your family. If you can take all that responsibility, then you have a job to take on the responsibility of a community and your friends. Yeah, mm. it's true. So. That's a beautiful way to think. That's why we get along. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Um, let me ask you this though, because I think a lot of people are going to want to hear about this too. Like, people are going to be cynical. They're going to say, are there, are there failures too? Like, is this, are there, are there times where like, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know how to put this. I would just say that when do you, when do you say that, okay, this or sort of justice isn't going to work for this person? Like maybe they, they get involved in, like, is there, is there, was there ever a time where they, okay, there's actually no hope for this person. Like, do you ever, like, have you ever seen that or like, um, maybe not personally, but you've seen like some studies where it's like, okay, this actually isn't going to work. Yeah. Um, a good friend of mine, um, Brenda Wolfer, um, has done restorative justice like all over. Um, and she's done it for years. And she told me a story of a, of a man who had no remorse for what he'd done. He was kind of glad that he had committed, and it was particularly heinous murder that is not a time for restorative justice. It's not going to happen because the both, all the parties need to come together, the community, the offender um, and the victim. And it would have just been harmful hmm. for the victim's mother to have heard this man say, no, I don't, I don't feel anything. Mm -hmm. I don't feel anything about what I've done. Yeah. And that would be, a, it's not going to work in that case. Right. And you know, those are, I mean, we're talking like complete sociopaths. Like, I mean, you know, like, I mean, there are people, there are literally people in this world that have no remorse. They just don't have it conditioned in their brain. Um, and it's like, what do you do for those people? Um, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, I know there more research needs to be done, but there is, um, Dan uh, Reisel has a Ted talk mm. actually about the amygdala and he went into prisons in um, England, Wormwood Scrubs is the name of it, I think. <laughs> Wormwood Scrubs, what a name, oh my God. Uh, but, um, and he went in and he talked to psychopaths, people who had been determined to be psychopaths. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he looked at their, um, he looked at their brains and talked to them too, but looked in to see if, the amygdala can grow if they can change if they can become more empathetic people and he believes the answer is yes mm. but it is not ever the answer to just segregate them from the population because yeah. then 
it's not going, nothing good is going to happen and they're going to become more, more harmful. But yeah, there, there are some of those cases. I, my friend, um, I, I work a lot with the poet and um, academic, she teaches at the University of Rostock in Rostock, Germany, um, Dr. Andrea Zitlau. And she does a lot of work in prisons as well. And she has told me stories that, you know, there, there are some times where it does seem that somebody should never actually be released from prison. Mm. And I, I have, here's, here's the thing though, in my entire time, and I have met hundreds and hundreds of incarcerated people at this point, there's only one guy that I actually really ever kind of thought, oh, maybe, maybe this is an appropriate spot for him because he basically admitted he would go back to his old life the minute he got out and his old life was harming people and i thought okay well then you should never go and it actually you know it's kind of interesting he at least had um self enough self-awareness to realize yeah i probably shouldn't go because i'd go right back that right there what you just said that is bizarre to have self such a self-awareness that mm-hmm. you can't you can't behave i i shouldn't say right in society but like you would harm other, I guess a better way to put it is you can't behave yourself enough to like to not harm other people and to be self-aware of that. That is, I mean, that's a punishment in itself. Like, yeah, God, but honestly, good. that is one person. Mm-hmm. The rest, I mean, and I'm, of course, I only see a certain segment of the population, by the way. Right. I only see the people who sign up for classes you know, which is already a very self-selecting group of people, people right. with enough self-confidence to say, yeah, I'll take a class with a college professor. You know, now we're giving credit for those classes at, um, in Chester. And so, yeah, it takes a little bit of self-confidence. It, usually those people are peer mentors. I've noticed they always tell us, you know, oh, I'm a peer mentor. I do this in the prison. I've had this kind of training. And I think it, it takes... It takes a lot, but I wonder about the other people, sometimes the, the quiet people who are not signing up for these things. Right. And I, you know, I wonder about their own personal struggles, which mm. is actually why one quick thing, Aiden, mm. um, I just got a grant from the Mellon Foundation, just a small grant, but it's to open a writing center inside mm. the prison. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm hoping that what this writing center will do is um, allow access to reading and writing for so many more people wow. who, who don't maybe want to come on for the full class, which is, you know, you should see the assignments that I gave for this last class. They were, oh my God, the readings were huge. The writing, I, I don't know that I would have assigned these writings in my creative writing 153. Mm. You know, they were, they were really difficult. And right. so it's, it is a little intimidating. So, but, but maybe just kind of walking up to, and the, the tutors will be incarcerated men, yeah, not college students, but the kind of highly trained incarcerated men who have shown like great promise, which we have a good number of them with fabulous writing and reading skills. Right. Um, but maybe those people can come out and begin to get a little bit of help and they might feel more comfortable 
you know, yeah. seeing somebody who lives on their own block. Yeah. Well, congratulations on getting that grant. That is, that is fantastic. Um, I'm excited. How common is this, although across America, like the, whether it's English or restorative justice, like how, how, all, like how, how popular is this idea? You know, restorative justice has really taken off. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I say that, I think, but not enough, you know, and there's the justice system is still pretty much running the way that it normally runs, but it is an option out there, you know, and I, I was involved um, in something that it's not exactly restorative justice, but it was um, where you have a panel of community members who hear the crimes of juvenile offenders. Mm-hmm. And if they come before us, we can expunge their records. It's mm-hmm. not restorative justice. It's a youth aid panel, but it has restorative principles. You know what I mean? And um, so it's not our job to sit there. And if the child comes before us to say, that's a lie, we listen. And we try to figure out a way to bring this person back into the community, you know, and if they have done harm to talk about the harm they did and maybe kind of stop it right there and also help them to avoid a criminal record. And those types of things have taken off all over the country and um and they've been you know reasonably successful mm-hmm. and some other things with restorative principles have entered things like schools i love restorative justice in schools but not every school's doing it you know but some schools are and some of them are doing youth courts again youth courts are not typically restorative justice but they have restorative principles mm-hmm. um where you know, kids actually act as the lawyer and the judge and the um, people who have done harm in the school community come forward and they talk it out, mm-hmm. you know, instead of with fists, yeah. you know, that they instead I, they talk. I mean, yeah, I mean, restorative justice has definitely taken off across um, America. We could always be doing more, but I think you have to kind of just take a step back and just remember, you know, not even less than a hundred years ago. I mean, you know, psychologists thought, you know, shell shocked wasn't really real and PTSD, all that kind of stuff. Like, um, and you know, the idea was to throw people in prison and then they'll learn, they'll do the time and they'll hopefully change. And that was, that was really all the science that they had. There wasn't really any psychology yet behind it. Um, so we're catching up, but it's going to take a lot of work to really transform well, prison system and how, how we deal with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You just got to stay hopeful, I guess. Yeah. And even just the way I'm, I am of the mind that restorative justice, one of the best places for it is in the school Mm. because, oh man, can you imagine how much, how wonderful it would be to not have people who become ostracized and to really truly have communities in schools instead of, packs of kids you you know what I mean who sometimes might do mean things to one another to just kind of nip that kind of thing in the bud before it begins you mean like high school and middle school like is that what you mean yeah yeah. I I thought university I was like oh I mean oh god no no I don't god I hope not no I think um 
you know, when you think back, it's funny you mentioned middle school because for some people, middle school is like about the coolest place they've ever found. That is a tough time, middle school. (laughs) It It really is. And I would love for, you know, for kids to learn circle processes sitting around where everybody gets a chance to speak and is encouraged to speak and is encouraged to see themselves as part of the community. I would love for that to become the norm mm-hmm. so that everybody is kind of raised on circle processes. So right. instead of, you know, again, just in, instead of hurting one another, right. that I we mean, listen. Even like, even like my middle school, like you, you could try as much as you want, but like if the boys aren't playing sports, like, I feel like you're, you're like out of the loop. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're not, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost taboo and weird for like people to read, like at oh. the middle school level. And I, tr- I, I feel that way, especially for the young boys, not so much for girls, but yeah, I, I, I think that to be the truth. But if you can make that the norm, like you just said, yeah. I, I mean, that would, they're young enough to have it transcend. Um, yeah. So I um, think you're right. Yeah, yeah, you've been there more recently than I have. Yeah. And I'd like to think that things have changed, but probably not that much. I think I'll, I think a lot of teachers are trying their best, but... That's good. Um, we'll yeah. see. Time will tell, they, I guess. They have enough on them. When you think, oh my God, I taught, and it's, now I can, now I can laugh about it. You're making me laugh, Corey. Um, <laughs> now I can laugh about it, but... Um, I taught ninth grade, just one class a day as -hmm. like a special project at Chester High School. Mm -hmm. And I really started to learn what teachers face. It's, there's all this emotional learning. There's, there's the stuff that there's the curriculum, heaven forbid the curriculum, you know, oh my God, there were some days it took me 15 minutes to fix all the angsty stuff so that we could actually sit down to start talking about the curriculum and the kids were fabulous you know it wasn't the fault of the of the kids it was just being that age and there was kind of no no other place for them to go to vent you know and I used to have kids who would um who would come and visit my class and try to break into the class and so I wound up taking people on who weren't actually my students. <laughs> they would stay in there. Freshman year is a tough place too, because like I mean, you're only 14 and people that are seniors are 18. Like they're adults. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's a really weird dynamic. Yeah. Oh, I, I know. It's almost like- I had really- in high school, but I would never do it again. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it, no. Oh, oh, I had forgotten. By the time I did that, I guess I was- I was in my forties and I thought, oh man, I had really forgotten how painful ninth grade is, mm. you know, and just all the things they were experiencing and, uh, and they were getting, you know, students were getting um, expelled and uh, for stupid things too. And I thought, oh my God, restorative justice could have fixed this in two shakes, mm-hmm. you know, for just something silly. One, one kid was throwing an empty plastic bottle into the trash can, believe me, I, I didn't fight the small things. I didn't bother saying anything about that kind of thing, who cares? But a guard walked into the room and saw him and it got really ugly. And before I knew it, my student was expelled overthrowing a bottle. 
And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. And so, yeah. I can't believe it. it doesn't even sound real. Yeah, I know. I know, but I thought this is, now I see what kids are trying to tell me is that no, adults really don't listen. You know? <laughs> and that's that. And like I said, this is the mindset. Like, this is like how we've been grained for yeah. God knows how long. Yeah. You know, instead of encouraging, encouraging what you want to pursue it's like you 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 go to class you sit down you listen you leave go to the next one and that's repeated every single day for eight months of the year mm-hmm. nine months of the year mm, well it's, it's what we're dealing with right now <laughs> i uh, know and we kind of forget about the human right aspect mm-hmm. yeah and i just my hat is off the teachers after that because it was it was one of the toughest years of my life. Mm-hmm. I honestly thought I was going to have to quit at one point. I went, no, quit. I'm going to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. But I did things I thought I'd never do in a classroom. Like one time I threatened to throw myself out the window. If I wouldn't sit down. <laughs> you get like, I shouldn't admit that. <laughs> I mean, I... <laughs> who, who is teaching these children? You've got to be kidding. But I, they wouldn't sit down and I was just, no. Throw myself out the window. Yeah, it was pretty dramatic. They were daring you to, honestly. Well, then they started saying, "We'll go ahead." And yeah. I was like, "Oh!" But then they went <laughs> down, and everything was okay. But yeah. oh my god, oh crazy times. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Jane, I just want to—I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great seeing you, great talking to you, and more in depth about restorative justice. Um, we're gonna get that letters to my younger self. I'll put it on the link, people. Um, like we said, all the, uh, the proceeds basically go back to, um, they go back to the publisher who buys free books, who then buy it for, um, people in juvenile, the juvenile system. So uh, there is no, there's no profits to this. Um, again, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this was episode, I don't know, episode 18, maybe. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. You're really doing something great. Like, I really honored. You know, the start of this just uh, just me just learning, just just talking to professors. Honestly, just really what it started as, and I, I guess it's I guess it's picking up. I don't know. Yeah, I I just I love this idea, and it was it was wonderful to get to spend time with you because I don't have you in class anymore. Mm-hmm. So this was a treat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, guys, if you like the stuff, make sure you know like and subscribe and send to your friends, and then we'll we'll, we'll maybe Dr. Thompson, Jane. <laughs> I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon and maybe we'll have you on again. We'll see. That would be lovely. Thank you. All right, everyone. We'll see you.